Hi, I'm Ann Barker. And I'm Liz James. And you're listening to The Cracked Cup. Okay. Hang on a sec. I've got to adjust the Bibles under my feet so that my knees don't hurt. The Bible? <laughs> I mean, I mean the footstools under what? my feet. What Bible? But they're just the perfect height and I wasn't using them. <laughs> it's just the bad ones, okay? Which ones are the bad? What religion's Bibles do you have under your feet? Oh, those are the heavily gendered mean ones. <laughs> All right, fair enough. But you have like the nice ones on the shelf behind you. Sure. I'm a little worried we're black. This is like when I said, made the joke about dicks in the Sunday service. I'm like, not sure. This joke feels a little bit on the line. Oh, yeah. That was really funny when you asked me afterwards. <laughs> was it okay that I said that? Um, <laughs> I forgot like, that I put it in after checking with you. Like, tell the people. approve the text. Tell the people what the, what the sentence was so they know no, what we're talking was, about. No, it was, I'm talking about when I'm in seminary and I'm, okay, wait, we'll have to go back. Um, we're talking about the service, the hysterical women's service that we delivered this Sunday. And I'm telling a story about being in seminary and not really being like the most ministerial academic proper person. You figure. And, <laughs> and I say like, words like pedagogy and eschatology don't work for me. And this is true. Every time someone says hermeneutics, I think, am I the only one who hears Herman new dicks? <laughs> I'm looking at Anne's face and she's confirming that, yes, you yep, are the only you one are who's the hearing only new one. dicks in that word. <laughs> I was like, oh, crap, I should have ran this past. <laughs> so yesterday after the service, Liz says to me, was that okay that I put that in the sermon? <laughs> and I was like, it's on the fence. This was... More about feedback than permission. <laughs> right. So this podcast, um, we're just talking about the hysterical women's service and how it went because we hopped on the phone right afterwards and we started having a whole conversation about the response time. And then I was like, we need to record this. So we're recording. Yay. Yay. So I think, I think you should play the service now. Okay. I am going to play it now. But if you've heard it already, you should skip ahead to the 21 minute mark. Or listen to it again because it's absolutely marvelous. I still vividly remember being a newcomer in my home congregation. I remember the way the stained glass cast a golden light across the floor and the plants climbing up the walls. And I remember how much the people were a part of the voice of the church. There was this time at the beginning when anyone could go up and light a candle and talk about something meaningful in their lives. This was supposed to be like births and deaths and new job, big things. Sometimes it was just a kid telling you they discovered their cat liked pancakes or someone's poem about the ongoing saga of their furnace repair. One time, it was Eleanor telling us that we needed to vote this week and that she can't tell us who we're going to vote for because she's not allowed to say that. But some people are more consistent with our values than others. And if we didn't know what she meant, we should talk to her at coffee hour. <laughs> and then after the sermon, still in the service, there was always response time when the service leader would get up and say, we know that among us, the truth is not spoken until many voices are heard. And then people would get up and they'd share what was in their hearts. And it was Still supposed to be related to the service, but sometimes it was just more details about the furnace repair. This was where you really got to know people, though, from what they shared. And I, I couldn't muster up the courage to speak myself, but I carefully took notes on who all these people were and what I might talk to them about later in coffee hour in my quest to turn them all into my friends and find my place in this new community. Now, well, one Sunday, the talk was about feminism and female empowerment. 
It's hard to empower women, said one, said one congregant, with frustration making his voice short, when they won't show up. I try to get women onto the boards I serve on, and they turn me down. Two rows away from me, a woman made a little gasp and put up her hand for the microphone. Sometimes, this woman said when it was her turn to speak, it's hard to show up in exactly the way you're supposed to. Sometimes, as women, it's all we can do to keep the house running and the kids okay and take care of all the extra things. And somehow, we're also expected to be responsible for all this other stuff just because we're women. And, and her words started to sound funny, like they were holding on to the inside of her for dear life and refusing to come out. And at the same time, they seemed to be tumbling over one another in a rush to come out all over the room. And she talked about life as a single mother on welfare and the struggle to fit into systems that weren't designed with people like her in mind. Tears poured unselfconsciously down her cheeks as she talked. And I was so enraptured with the story she was painting, I didn't even realize at first that the room was tightening slightly. Faces begin to look the way that muscles, that muscle between your shoulder blade always feels, like they were holding something heavy. After church, I invited her over for lunch, not because of what she said exactly, mostly because nestled in that torrent of emotion was this tiny kernel of a fact that her kids were nine and 11 and my kids were eight and 12. That's about the same age. Great friendships are forged out of kids being about the same age. Months later, she told me she couldn't believe that I would offer to have lunch with her right after her entirely inappropriate meltdown in the middle of the service. I was confused. I didn't know you weren't supposed to melt down in the service. I thought that was what spiritual homes were for. The broken stuff, the hard stuff. Not a place to dump it for others to carry, but a place to share from the heart. They had said, we know that among us, the truth is not spoken until many voices are heard. Many voices, gasping voices and singing voices and sobbing and giggling voices, all the voices, even the untidy ones. I have always fought for the place of hysteria in our faith. In case you haven't guessed yet, the meltdown woman was me. And that lunch was the start of a beautiful friendship. One that has supported and challenged, sustained, and definitely inspired both of us over the past two decades. But let's go back to the meltdown. What I remember about that day was the uncontainable feeling that my gender, my gender was being characterized as not showing up or not pulling its weight when it seemed like all I did was show up and pull my weight. I was raising kids, preparing to go back to school, cutting hair in my kitchen and just to make ends meet. And not long after that event, I would become the church treasurer. What I didn't have was money money for childcare, money to get better deals by buying in bulk, money to purchase or operate a car. So everything I did was funded by the currency of time. And a wealthy man was telling me, telling the congregation that women weren't showing up to accept his invitations. Now, my mother's life mission had been peace at any cost. After a challenging childhood with her single mom, a hardworking woman who regularly moved or boarded out my mom so that my grandma could go to work, the only thing my mom wanted in life was peace and stability. Peace at any cost means that you swallow your feelings and your concerns. You hold it in so you don't ever upset the apple cart. 
So I grew up in a middle-class, comfortable, stable home with the traditional gender role divisions of labor, never worrying that I would be separated from my parents or wondering where my next meal would come from. But there was a different problem. My dad was introverted and caring, but he was also quick to anger. And he was the center of mom's universe. Peace at any cost. So I was trained to anticipate how he might respond and to act accordingly. It didn't matter what I was feeling in the shadow of what he might feel. I spent my childhood wanting to grow up to be my dad rather than the mom because being the mom seemed so small and squished and being the dad seemed so free. As an adult, I can see now that neither one of them was free to be themselves in that scenario. We hear that old saw that men are rational and women are emotional, and this distinction is pure poison. We are all both, both and more. And these things are indivisible. Women have been characterized as hysterical as a tool to diminish them, to contain them, to discredit their contributions and to prevent them from holding power. Imagine my shock when I stood up in church that day and spoke the truth of my situation, stood up for women, stood up for low-income people, and let all of my messy feelings show in such a public, proper place. The truth of me, and of Liz too, is that we are anything but containable and proper. Of course, we can get cleaned up and behave in a formal setting, sort of. But our core personality styles are a combination of exuberant and messy. One of my biggest lessons while studying for ministry was that I could never, ever drink at church events, not a single glass. Not because I didn't know my limits or how to hold my alcohol. I grew up with five brothers and I knew how to hold my own in a social setting. Rather, it was because I'm a social being and I'm loud by nature. I'm a big E extrovert, passionate, enthusiastic, and strong-willed. If you are all of these things, exuberant and messy, you might gesticulate wildly while talking and occasionally knock over a glass of wine or stumble when you're overcome with laughter while trying to fill a plate and tell a story at the same time. Basically, people think you're drunk. Now, when you're the minister, even in a purely social setting, you are always working. And drunk doesn't exactly come across as professional. So while I have learned to lean into my honest self, to risk letting the world see who I really am, to trust that people's understanding is expansive enough to welcome a large personality as being something more than just a hysterical woman, it's still too precarious to risk enthusiasm being conflated with intoxicated. I empathize with that drinking thing. It is a real problem for me as well, which is surprising because I never drink. And yet I will frequently go to leave a party and have some kind person gently put their hand on my arm and say, are you sure that you're good to drive Liz? This can be awkward. <laughs> I then have to explain that I am in fact stone cold sober and this is just my personality. <laughs> I wasn't raised to be quiet. I was in fact specifically raised to take up space. I remember one year my sister came home from school crying because the desk they gave her that year didn't fit. 
I mean, it fit technically, but she liked to swing her legs when she worked and there wasn't enough room for her to do that. So my parents heard her out and then they spent the evening talking to her about civil disobedience and Henry David Thoreau. Talking about Henry David Thoreau was my dad's go-to parenting response for everything. My sister arrived at school the next morning and politely removed everything from her desk and stacked it on the floor and began working. And when she was asked what she was doing, she explained she was on desk strike until she was given appropriate seating. Her teacher met this with scorn and then frustration and then a trip to the principal's office. And eventually he met it with a new desk. I think of this story a lot when I'm in situations where there isn't quite enough room for me. I think about how it's okay to claim space even when it's inconvenient, that it's okay to leave too if you need to, but often the most powerful thing is to stay, to stay in the room, but also push back. When I'm in those situations, I often think of my sister, books spread out on the floor, sharpening her pencil and getting to work. I call it working alongside the desk. That poor teacher. Sending your kids marching off to school declaring, let my life be counter-friction to stop the machine is a little bit unfair to the administration. Don't you think? I realize that now as an adult. (laughs) This stuff was not a hit with the teacher. Frankly, it was not a hit with the other students. Walden Pond, not what the cool kids read in elementary school. I know from personal experience that Thoreau doesn't go over well in elementary school. Didn't go over well in seminary either. Even UU seminary, which surprised me. Since our tradition is intertwined with people like Thoreau, you'd think I had felt you'd think I would feel at home there, but in a lot of ways I didn't. Words like pedagogy and eschatology make me feel itchy, and every time someone referred to hermeneutics, I would think, "Does anybody else hear Herman New Dix? Herman New Dix? Nobody else heard that. <laughs> they were too mature to hear that. Anne was too mature to hear that. They were all there to learn." <laughs> So for me, it was UU Seminary, not my family, that was the place where I learned I needed to be a little more tidy and go with the system a little more. At least that's what I tried to learn. My mind was like a squirmy and obstinate toddler, always wiggling away from my homework to go hunt down fun things. I was forever abandoning the boring but accurate works of the UU Historical Society that I was supposed to be reading. Instead, I would do things like gather up the other seminarians and found the UU Hysterical Society, which we used to play very elaborate and historically specific jokes on one another. At first, that was before we discovered memes. Memes, they were the place for the Herman Newdix style of joke. So one day, I stopped asking myself why I was such a wrong, whether I was such a wrong-sized seminarian, how I was such a wrong-sized seminarian, and I started asking myself, what kind of a right-sized thing am I? One day, I decided that I could follow what I loved from both worlds, creating a space for you-you laughter that I craved. I decided I would stop trying to fit into the desk, and I would start working alongside it. I decided to stop thinking of the care of my growing little you-you hysterical society as goofing off, as the thing I did when I was taking a break from the ministerial formation process that was breaking me. I started thinking of it as my own style of ministry. And I stopped thinking of myself as breaking, too. The cracks we are told are how the light gets in, but they're also how the light gets out. Humor matters because religion isn't just about what you believe. It's not about the theology and the ideas and the structures and the bylaws, not just about those things anyways. It's also about shared culture. That's why we sing together. That's why we tell each other stories. That's why laughing together is so important. A good joke is a way to share culture. It's a different kind of welcome. 
And an idea that is intertwined with humor is a message that's easy to pay attention to. It's easier to share with others. It can go places that lectures and academics texts can't go. And it makes space for more types of people. It makes space for people who are like me. A good joke connects us. It allows us to think about things from a new angle. It allows us to approach tricky topics in a new way. A joke is a risk. We try and sometimes we miss the mark. Sometimes we're even hurtful. And working through that is a way to learn and care about each other. A joke is a way to release tension too, to connect with each other and just have a shared breath. It opens us up in new ways, which I think might be why they call it cracking up. I don't think it leads to breaking. I think it leads to hatching. If you have ever felt or been told that you were too much or not enough, let us dispel that for you right now. The world is beautiful and messy and complicated, and you are the absolutely right-sized thing for your own beautiful, messy, complicated life. We do the silliest things trying to hide our vulnerabilities. When I was a teenager, I would wear jeans to the beach while my friends were all wearing swimsuits and frolicking in the ocean. It took me years to realize that people could already tell that I was fat, that wasn't news to them, and that I was roasting on the sand because I believed the story that being fat was shameful, that I didn't have a body that fit the beach. And even as recently as a few years ago, when my knees were disintegrating from arthritis, I was too stubborn to use a cane at first because using a cane made me feel that same kind of vulnerable all over again. It made my pain more visible. And again, there was no one who ever saw me walk that didn't already know that I was suffering. When I accepted my reality and made peace with the necessity, I discovered that using a cane cut my pain in half. In half! Now, I just want to carry spare canes everywhere I go and hand them out to all the people I see struggling. But we know that hatching doesn't work that way. Hatching happens when the conditions are right. And that's one of the gifts of religious community, creating conditions for growth and healing and transformation and creating that supportive nest for hatching. When we try to squeeze ourselves into spaces or programs or cultures where we don't fit, we end up crushed. We get smaller and smaller, trying to fit in, trying to be invisible, trying not to stand out, or we end up leaving because there was insufficient room for us to bring all that we are. Now, this is the bring all that you are wind up part of the sermon. Our Unitarian Universalist communities, whether it is our congregations with our Sunday services and children's programs and all the other activities, or the UU Hysterical Society with all of the online mirth and dignity, our communities can be places where people thrive, where they recognize that all of them is welcome. Cracks and all. People have teased me that I'm not happy until somebody is crying. Okay, Liz and my wife tease me about that. And it's partly true. I mean, I don't need you all to be crying all the time, but I do need to know that the spaces we're creating together are safe for crying and for laughing. <laughs> 
and for cracking and for singing, even if you can't carry the tune. When a place is large enough and gracious enough to hold someone's pain, unexpected, ugly cry and all, it reassures others that their pain is also welcome. When a community is brave enough to take on challenging conversations, to risk and learn and change together, then people with marginalized identities or with diverse learning styles might find that there is also safety there for them. When a gathering is generous enough to celebrate our joys and laughter, even when we laugh a little too loud or at the wrong spot in the sermon, well, you know. When we make room for the variety of ways of being in the world, when we remember that all people are our people in all of our beautiful, messy, complicated glory, then we are living into the covenant that makes us Unitarian Universalists. This is the work that we are called to do together. May it always be so. Blessed be and amen. All right, so just for context, the service wasn't just that. There was some really cool music. There was a really neat children's story. We do like a chalice lighting extinguishing sort of thing. And I'm putting a link in the show notes for if you want to see all the stuff that surrounded the sermon. But since it's the sermon is ours, that's what we felt like we could put in the podcast. And then after the service, <laughs> the truth is not spoken until many voices are heard. Exactly. And there's usually some kind of <laughs> Zoom conversation in a Unitarian congregation. Um, oh, look how I've transitioned into that being normal. Unitarians <laughs> <And then laughs> do Zoom. Um, and so we stayed in the center. And that was the part of the service that I loved so much. I was very surprised by the turn that the conversation took. And it's something that I wanted to talk about more, which was why mm -hmm. I schmoozed you into coming back this morning. Sure. sure. It was a question for you, actually. So you should right. say one of the, One it. of the questions was about how did I get over the shame around being a single mom on welfare, raising my kids at home. And that was a, that was a tough question to get. Um, first of all, because I got to say, that's not actually my experience, right? <laughs> that's what I thought when she asked it. I was like, there was no shame. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what I remember about shame and being poor in church, which mm -hmm. isn't what I said on Sunday because I didn't think that quickly, was... Um, when it was stewardship time, so the time when the congregation says to people, you know, what can you pledge for this year to help out with the congregation financially and in your efforts as well? And nobody would ask me. They all knew oh. I was a single mom on welfare, right? They wouldn't ask me. They wouldn't set up a stewardship appointment. Or if they did, somebody would come and say, now we know you can't afford to financially contribute, oh. but we value your participation. I mean, I ended up being the treasurer and then the president. To be and clear, that every stuff. time something needed doing in a volunteer role, we went straight to her and no one else. <laughs> I did many of the things. I did, I did. So it's not um, like you weren't contributing. It was but, right. And I didn't ever feel like people didn't think I was contributing, but they they just jumped directly to because I was funded by welfare, I wouldn't have enough money to contribute anything to the congregation. What was that like for you? Um, I just thought it was wrong because mm. uh, now so I was a new Unitarian. I was new to this whole idea of pledging. I had no idea how, you know, churches finance themselves. Um, and 
when I made the decision to become a member, it was a really big deal to me. Like I thought, this is a really big commitment. I've never been a member of anything before, right? And it meant a lot. I went for the meeting with the minister who said, oh, I'm so surprised. Nobody ever does this, which <laughs> it's on the list of things you have to do. I did it. I did it. I came after you and I did it. <laughs> I know that's because, you know, we're twins. You told me I had to do it. That's right. <laughs> it's important. I mean, that's, that's a great thing to do to talk through why are you choosing to join this community and what does it mean to you in your life? Anyway, um, part of being a part of the membership was that I'm responsible for this place, right? We are all the the employers and the building owners and the caretakers. We're all the things. And so I thought, if I'm going to be a member, I need to make a financial contribution. Now, my financial contribution was small, mm -hmm. right? I started out giving $20 a month. $20 at that time was what it cost me to take my kids and their siblings, who I had on the weekend, to Burger King and buy them each a burger and bring them home and eat them with, you know, drinks and vegetables and stuff at home. Because mm -hmm. you could get a burger for a buck. So we could get enough burgers and some fries for 20 bucks. And and so we probably did that a couple of times a month. That was our big special event. And so we talked about it as a family and said, like, you know, being a part of this church means you contribute. And so we decided we could contribute $20. If we could afford to go to Burger King, we could afford to give 20 bucks. It's interesting when she asked about shame and we were talking about those places where class is an issue in Unitarianism, where we come from a fairly moneyed tradition, on the Unitarian side anyways. And so people tend to have a lot of degrees. And when you are a single mom on welfare, there is this cultural conflict. And I've seen a lot of people respond to that conflict who don't have a lot of money with a sense of shame. And right. you responded to, there is a cultural conflict here. You have done a bad job of making room for people like me. Like, I never felt that you felt the problem was you. <laughs> like, I, I was fortunate that way. I was fortunate that way. And part of that comes from growing up in this solidly middle-class family that I talked about, right? I never wanted for anything. I always was told I could do anything I wanted. And so I believed in my heart that I would be okay Yep. And this was a choice that I made in terms of how to care for my children in a time when I didn't have the support and resources that I needed to do it any other way. You also came out of a Christian family and Unitarianism also has its roots in Christian Christianity. And I believe if you check the Bible under your feet, Jesus made pretty clear about whether poor people are allowed in church. I believe there's some kind of passage about they are allowed if they come through the eye of this needle or something like that. Exactly. I didn't finish seminary. What, one, of my, <laughs> one of my favorite Bible stories is about the widow who puts her two pennies in. Yeah. Right? And that that's um, that that was more generous than the rich guy that puts in whatever he puts in because her two pennies was all she had. So I totally felt that. So when I went to do my membership interview that you told me I had to do, so one of my questions was, what am I supposed to give? And they said, well, this is the range of what people give. I'm a brand new member. And I thought, oh, okay. I was married to a surgeon at the time. We had quite a bit of money. And so I said, oh, well, I'm at the top range of income, therefore I should pay the top pledge, right? Which is not usually what a new member does. <laughs> usually a new member started a smaller amount, but I interpreted it as what means do you have? Right. And there was like a surprised gratitude that made it clear I'd done the wrong thing. Like, oh, right. really? That's a oh, lot. Okay. Yeah. That's so generous. That's so generous. Which sort of is a way of saying this isn't really what we expected you to do. 
And that and I have often at that time in my life when I was in a position to give a lot of money, gotten a response of, oh, my goodness, that is so generous. When there was no sacrifice in my giving right. that pledge, I didn't give up anything to do that. And so there that always felt a little wrong to me. And I it's funny because during that time in our lives, I had a ton of shame around money. <laughs> right. Right. And because I had had I grew up middle class like you, both my parents had university degrees. Um, but I was homeless and in foster care and then in a blue collar foster home. And so I had this wealth in my life, but also this profound sense that there are people who do not have enough food. And when mm. you don't have enough food, you really need that money. And why is it arranged in this way that I should have so much and other people should have so little? Right. And no sense of deserving it. Some of that's because I married into it, so I didn't have the experience of working my way up through a career. And so I, I always had shame. And if it weren't for the fact that you were so good at saying – we won't let money get between us. That would have been a problem in our friendship. Right. Because I would say, don't you feel like I didn't do anything to deserve having money and security and you don't have security? And your response was always, yeah, yeah, no, you deserve money and security. So do I. The problem is that I don't have it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and that, that was a real gift to me that enabled me to sort of manage some of that shame, although not all of it. Yeah. I can remember a really profound moment when I became the treasurer and one of my jobs was to write all the checks and I was writing the minister's paycheck. Mm -hmm. And I remember writing that dollar amount and thinking I had never earned that dollar amount in a single paycheck in my life. I'd mostly worked, you know, service work, restaurants, um, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and writing that down and thinking, wow, that's a lot of money. Now, for the record, it's not a lot of money. It's <laughs> comparable to like a um, high school teacher salary is how we think of Unitarian Universalist ministers' salaries. That's mm -hmm. how we grade it, roughly. And then it varies with experience and things. But to me, it was a lot of money. And mm -hmm. I wrote that thing and I had this little moment of, how come you get that much money and I only get this much money to live? And then this whoosh came over me where I was like, no, that whole thing about the inherent worth and dignity of every person is that every person should have enough money to live on. Yeah. That this isn't a, this isn't a multi-billion dollar, you didn't need any more money, but you're taking it all anyway situation. This is a, just a decent living salary, not even on the extravagant end of things. And this is what I should wish for everybody. Yep. And that shifted something inside of me that that we were all worthy of that. And then any time I hear somebody say that or complain about somebody getting more money than them or something, I, I shift to the let's work on a system where we all have enough money that we don't worry about where we're going to live and what we're going to eat and what we can do. I think that's why I don't have shame now is because I am living on an amount of money that I think everyone should get. Right. Like I'm a real believer in as things become more and more automated and robots are able to do more and more things and there are not enough menial jobs mm -hmm. that we should convert to just like we say healthcare is a right, that a very low amount of money is just a right. And we don't have all the infrastructure of welfare and disability and right. because that's where home. the shame comes from. Yeah. That's where the shame comes from. Like if we had guaranteed basic income and everybody could access what they needed to have shelter and have food and have the basics of living and access to healthcare, which is yeah. really, you know, that's the bottom line of what you need. Then 
then there is no test of whether or not you're worthy. And that's the experience of going, I think a lot of the shame comes from the experience of going through the social services systems because they make you prove that you are, um, you know, that you're poor. They make you prove that you can't work. They make you prove your circumstances. There is a horrible story um, about a year ago that came out about a veteran who had had amputations and so was on a disability income program and they required them to get a doctor's letter every year to confirm that yes indeed they still had amputations oh my right? god it was like it's like oh. i get it if you have something that could heal <laughs> that you're going to recover <laughs> from that you're that's going to grow back then then you shouldn't have to demonstrate you know I'm imagining it's, this doctor getting saltier and saltier over time. So this year, in June, I thought they were growing back, and I was very excited. <laughs> I was going to write it up in the Journal of Medicine and become famous. But then I realized partway through July that, no, indeed, they were not. Having tried 17, 17 new alternative uh, therapies, still <laughs> amputations. I was like, come on, people. Why are we doing it? Why, do we, why are we so judgy? And it's... It's just a ridiculous system. The thing is, we all deserve to have a decent, safe, caring living. All of us. Yeah. It's stupid. I remember I was in foster care and the foster mom wasn't using the money she was given for our food on food. She was using it on other things. Right. So we didn't have any food. And I decided I was going to start shoplifting food. I shoplifted broccoli the first time, <laughs> um, which I do not recommend. Broccoli is very challenging to shoplift. Also, when I got home and I gave it to the foster sisters, I'm like, look at this moral choice I've made. I've brought you broccoli. Everyone was like, I don't want to eat that. And then I had to eat the whole head of broccoli and it was a lot of broccoli. I do not recommend broccoli. <laughs> but that's Why did you choose broccoli? Because it was the most moral choice. Also, maybe right. there was some shame involved in that. I... I really felt like if I was a 15-year-old shoplifting broccoli, I had the moral high ground. Like, right. I very much felt like I'm 15, right. society should be feeding us, you guys are fucked up, I have a right to take all the vegetables I want. I'm <laughs> I hungry. Totally did. This is nutritious, and nobody wants to eat it, so yep. it's okay for me to take it. Yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely how I felt. So there was zero shame. Um, later I started stealing icing, and then there was shame. But um, but I remember I didn't feel ashamed about being in that position. Part of that was because I was a child. But I did feel ashamed when I would make certain choices. So I would be poor and I would make dumb decisions like I'd go for ice cream instead of saving it for beans or whatever. I wouldn't spend my money very carefully and well sometimes. And I would feel shame for that. Like the reason I ran out of money this month is because I didn't make perfect choices all month. Mm -hmm. And... It was not until I was rich that I realized that nobody makes perfect choices with their money. Right. But when you are rich, you have wiggle room. And everyone was like, oh, you're making such good choices with your money. No, you remember my choices were terrible. <laughs> but You because, wiggled a lot. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of wiggling going on with my wiggle room. But you think, and it's the same with people who have like chronic health conditions where they're like, well, I should have spent my energy on this knowing I only had two hours of energy in the day, but instead I did this other thing. And then you feel like you can't get through the day because you made bad choices. But it's in fact the fact that you only had two hours of good time or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So that was what I thought about to do with shame. You must have some... You must have some things you are ashamed about, though, just not money. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a little bit of that in the story I told in the service you were just listening to, that that piece around weight. I've carried shame around that for as long as I was aware that I was fat by global standards. Yeah. And that was never 
something my family put on me. It wasn't like people were saying that to me, but all of those those social messages, right? It was so hard and so heavy to carry that. And I thought I could hide under clothes. So water is my happy place. Swimming is my favorite thing in the world. And I would sit on the beach while my friends were swimming because I thought I was hiding my fat. Like, how mixed up is that? And so that was a shame that I carried that I didn't even know where it came from, really. I had just internalized that messaging. It's funny how nobody actually has to tell you for you to know it's not okay. I was a size 14, which I think is similar yeah. to what you were. Yeah. And, well, there were some people, I guess, that told me that I was too heavy. But mostly, <laughs> those weren't the people whose opinion I cared about. Right. But I, I wouldn't describe it as if I could wear this, they wouldn't know I was fat. Uh, the sentence I always asked myself was, can, is someone of my size allowed to wear something like this? So wearing something right. like a swimsuit is a thing you earned by virtue of being thin. Because if you weren't thin enough to wear it, you would be making other people's eyeballs uncomfortable. There is a second way to solve right. this problem. <laughs> if they don't want to look at you, they don't Poke have to. out their eyeballs. That did not occur to me that they had the option of looking or not looking as they saw fit. Um, but I definitely felt like I had to be a certain size to earn wearing certain clothing, which is interesting. I do not have that experience now. Right. Well, Even and as a kid, quite a bit larger. Exactly. Right. As a kid, I didn't consciously think, you know, they won't know I'm fat if I'm wearing these clothes. I just that that was the whole message that I had internalized. Right. That this is not what fat people are supposed to wear baggy clothes. There's there's not a space on the beach for bodies like mine in a bathing suit. And you know, if you haven't ever been fat, you may not know that people yell rude things at you. Like people walk past you and moo. I have been walking down the street, uh. getting exercise, right? Walking down the street with the dog and teenagers will yell, lean out of the car and yell rude things at me. And it doesn't uh. happen. It doesn't happen every day. It's not like the weight of the burden, like the weight of the racism burden, but it's so devastating when somebody goes out of their way to yell something horrible at you, right? And that kind of thing definitely could happen at the beach easily. So I think I was protecting myself. I was just trying to put myself in my little denim bubble, trying to stay safe in there. Do you still think, ouch, when people yell that? Or do you think, what's the matter with you when people yell that now? Yes. <laughs> Both. What's the, right? what's the difference between when you were on welfare, if someone said, ugh, you're on welfare raising your children, I feel like that would have slid off your back pretty quick. Especially at church, you'd have been like, you have created space poorly for people like me. But that doesn't happen with weight. Right. Why right. is that? I think weight is one of the things that we think that it's okay to shame people about. If you, mm. if you pay attention to uh, sitcoms and things, they're, uh, I, I'm reading a, a cozy mystery book right now where they keep describing the little fat Frenchman. Mm. And I think... You know, you could maybe describe what he looks like once, but to always refer to him as the little fat Frenchman. And he's a character that she's suspicious of, that she thinks he's dealing drugs or something. Not everybody has seen me, but I'm 200 pounds, but very hourglassy. 
is what I look like. Mm-hmm. And um, just go onto the onto the Facebook and find Liz twirling in her sparkly oh, yeah. mermaid oh, dress. I'll tell, the, I'll, I'll tell the mermaid dress. Okay. Anyways, this is what I look like. And I have taken to referring to myself as fat. And people will go, no, 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 you're beautiful. And I will think, I didn't say I wasn't beautiful. Right. <laughs> this was not what I addressed. <laughs> or they will say, no, you're not fat because I don't fit their image of what a fat person looks mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. And I've had to be really militant. But no, there's an objective definition of fat. And I am fat. And I'm not insulting myself. I'll be saying that in things like acro yoga where I'm saying – and there I'll say I'm heavy. People go, oh, right. you're not that heavy. I'm like, well, wait until you lift me. I, <laughs> right, <yeah>. right. <laughs> I don't look light, but I'm actually even heavier than I look. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so the dress. So Anthony had to shoot a video for school, a trailer for a movie. And in it, so of course he has to use his immediate family for all of the characters in the movie because Keep of it COVID. in the bubble. Yeah, keep it in the bubble. And I owe him one because last spring he played eight characters for my Mirth and Dignity video. Link in the description. And so, (laughs) see how I did that? Getting better at this. Um, And so he was like, we need someone to play a 16-year-old girl twirling and singing. I was like, this is going to take a lot of blurring. (laughs) And she needed to be in an over-the-top, ruffly rainbow dress. And so we went to Value Village. We're looking for an over-the-top, ruffly rainbow dress. And we find one in size 16. And it looks exactly like the description in the book is it's so fancy and ruffly and rainbow that you think she might be a little bit crazy to be wearing it. That's what right. it is. That this is exactly that dress. the dress you found. <laughs> uh, there's a little more cleavage than the book described, but other than that. <laughs> and so we got this dress on. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to try this on. This is a-. And I put it on and I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, I'm a fairy princess. <laughs> so beautiful. And it's funny because there were women in my life when I was 16 who were my size and who were unapologetic about it. And... I would think, oh, God, I hope I never become like that because then I won't even know I should be ashamed. They're walking around doing all these things and they don't even know they should be ashamed. Right. And it was so interesting to be twirling in my fairy princess rainbow dress, (laughs) which, of course, I put a clip of online (laughs) and thinking, oh, yeah, no, I'm that woman. And it's wonderful not to be ashamed. And so you see the public service you're offering to future generations by twirling in your rainbow dress. They're going to say, oh, I'm just like Liz now. So then Jess puts, when we posted the sermon, Jess puts underneath, how come you're not? uh, It says, let me read it. It says, it's fine, but I was hoping you would wear the rainbow gown and twirl. (laughs) Right. And so Liz replies, this is an excellent idea. I will run it past Anne for our next service. And they're all smiley and laughy and all the nice comments. And I say, Liz James, maybe in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) To which you adamantly replied, it's an audio format. (laughs) Also, that rainbow dress is not conducive to the best vocal control. (laughs) I love the rainbow dress. For the record, I love the twirly rainbow dress. I think she should wear it everywhere forever. Oh, I'm keeping it. I'm I was just demonstrating I can also be funny. Yes. Exa- <laughs> <laughs> okay, but there was a follow-up thing that you I... choked on that. <laughs> I didn't focus, choke on that. I had something else I wanted to say, and I was trying to figure out how to transition to me talking more, even though I've already talked a whole bunch. <laughs> can I say my follow-up thing? Yes. Because I posted on Facebook about, you know, like, yay, we should all claim space. And little 16-year-old me said back... Yeah, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to care what people think, but that's really hard. Like, 
so easy to say for you and so hard for me to say. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the thing I want to say to 16-year-old me or 16-year-old other people isn't you shouldn't care what other people think. Get it together. Stop caring. Right. Because they've heard that. That's stupid, useless advice. What I want to say is when you are 16, so much of your power comes from when people look at you in the world or pleasing people in the world or being sweet and kind. And good news, when you are older, you will have more types of power and you will be freed from that. Right. Not right. you ought not to care what people think. That also, is a beautiful message. Also, find new people. <laughs> right. Right. My mom, I would come home from school and say, why are they so mean to me? My mom would say, anybody who doesn't love you the way you are, dear, they're not your friends, which is like the ultimate truth. Except it didn't help at the time. No, it no, didn't help it at all. <laughs> but I'm stuck with them every day and they're really, really mean. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't help if you have to go to school, but you will not have to go to school forever. Someday you will get out of the horrible prison that is academics. Right? And it, it took me a long time to learn to love my body and to love the skin I'm in and the shape I am. And that's been a really important part of my process. And I know we've talked on here about how I, you know, lost a hundred pounds. I had to do that. So I would qualify for knees. I didn't do it because I hated myself. No, I didn't do it because I was ashamed. But the, the magical thing that happened for me was I once went to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting and I sat in this room with people who had various um, concerns, right? Different. Some of them had serious uh, eating disorder issues that they were dealing with, and they were bodies of all shapes and sizes. And each person just told their story. And I went in with a lot of self-loathing and desperation at the time. And I listened to the stories around the circle. And each one of them, like, I would get tears in my eyes and my heart would well up. And I think, I just, you know, you're, you're so sweet and I love you so much and you're trying so hard and I, I just want it to be okay for you. I just want you to feel safe. And it was so easy to love all the people around the table. And when I left there, I sat in my car and I cried and I thought, why is it that I can love all the people around this town, I don't even know them. I just met them and I can feel for them and love them instantly. And I don't love me. It's always amazed me how judgmental you are about needing a cane when you would never in a million years judge that in somebody else. Right? And it was, it was so helpful in trying to narrow that down to one sentence for the service <sighs> for me to figure out where that came from. Because I wasn't I am not. I mean, I'm, I'm still disabled. I can't walk very far and I still need another knee and the, the new one's still working, you know, still growing up. It's mm -hmm. a baby. But I wasn't ashamed of being disabled. I wasn't, because uh, I think all bodies are good bodies and there's nothing wrong with this body except that it hurts and it doesn't walk very well. But I was, it was putting me back in that vulnerable place again. It was hanging another sign out there, like having the cane, hanging another sign out there that says, here's another thing you can yell at me from your car. And to think that at 57, I would still go to that place before I went to the healthy place, that just tells you that these things come in cycles, right? You've got to work through it over and over again. It's not like you you sort out those kind of feelings. I don't have any shame about fat. I mean, if you yelled at me out the car, I would be hurt for a second, and then I would think you were a jerk. And then I would think, what a sad little life you have. I have a full life. People love me. I do great things in the world. <laughs> go away, loser. <laughs> But I still 
you know, I still didn't want to feel so vulnerable. It's about vulnerability for me. Yeah. Also, anyway. you provide a tremendous service when you go up on to the pulpit using your cane. Because yeah. when the minister hop skips and a jumps right up there, they're not making space for anybody behind them. And it's fine to be a fully able-bodied minister. There's nothing wrong right. with that. <laughs> we are not going to shame the able-bodied ministers today. But I remember when I did trapeze as a 200-pound woman, not a lot of 200-pound right. trapeze people, and... We would do it in the park and or with friends and everybody would say, can I try the trapeze? Because they saw me doing it and they're like, oh, maybe I can right. do that too. Like, Norm a normal people can do this too. Yeah. <laughs> Regular people can do this too. <laughs> it's the same thing when I sing. People hear me and go, huh, I could sing then if yeah. that's what's required. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things, um, one of the things I watched when we, when you first advertised this as an event, there was a whole conversation and chatter about hysterical women and hysteria and what that meant historically and stuff. There, there were a couple of men who maybe said some things they should have thought through first before they said them. Maybe they were new. Maybe they didn't understand where they came from. I thought it was really the wrong choir. Really sweet that they got dead air. Um, I know. I love that. I just need to say to everybody. Dead air is the best response to something There's that's like iffy. <laughs> so much power in dead air. Oh, so. Much but power. after the after we um, put just the sermon out, um, by which I mean you, somebody posted that uh, they appreciated it, and there is so much more to say about um, hysterical women and hysteria and the historical piece of that. And there, that is so true. And I just want to say. Um, I wish that we could preach for two and a half hours. <laughs> when she said, I wish it had gone longer, I was like, that's the first time anybody has said, I wish Anne and Liz would talk longer. Do you know we have a podcast? <laughs> oh, my goodness. There is so much to say. And some of the stories that people told through the different online spaces were heartbreaking about, like, being misdiagnosed mm. for serious physical ailments because they were just, you know, it's all in your head or uh, you're emotional. Or because or doctors whatever. don't know how to say, we don't know, we're not there yet, right? we're not smart enough to understand what's going on. That's not a thing that the medical system is really good at, to say, if I can't help you, maybe you just need to keep trying to find someone who can, instead of just writing off who you are. So people with misdiagnoses for years, until somebody, I think one of them was somebody who said it took them years to finally get a diagnosis and they had MS. Oh. It's like, how oh, makes me so mad. So we know, this is our public service announcement, we know that hysteria has been a word that people have used to categorize women, right? We only barely touch on it in the service. Liz, talk about the great thing about reclaiming hysterical oh. for, the, for the group, because that's yeah. on your website, but tell more. Yeah, so this came up when we were deciding whether or not we were going to keep the word hysteria because it has a lot of problematic history. Not a fan of Freud myself. I really wanted to keep it, and I think people have let me get away with it because they're very nice, because there's a story about the roots of the group. So the group had been around for a couple years, two, three years at this point, 
was 2018 and I was just getting a divorce. And so, as mentioned, I had been a surgeon's wife, a pillar of the community, pledging at the top tier, volunteering for everything. And then all of a sudden... Crashing out of seminary. Yeah, well, (laughs) crashing out of seminary, but, you know, uh, yeah, recently crashed out of seminary. And I had been experiencing some mental health challenges, as often happens towards the end of a marriage. Um, And so I had been sliding for a couple of years from pillar. So I'd been pillar and then I was having these mental health challenges and then my marriage was dissolving. I had a lot of judgment and shame around that. Talk about shame. I believed that good people stayed in marriages and preserved them no matter how miserable everyone was because the institution of marriage is way more important than the happiness of the people in it. Ouch. Yeah, no, I really believed that. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm sorry. And so I was, I had moved out. I was actually in the apartment that my foster sister had had when she first moved out, when she'd had her babies in, was a single mom. And I loved this apartment. It was a dive, but I loved it. So I was excited to be there. But um, I had, so I already had some concerns about hysteria because I'd had some mental health problems and I'd had some sort of some numbness and tingling and stuff that they figure was maybe a side effect of medication. So I'd already Mm -hmm. had some of these conversations and I had a bad bout of um, vertigo. So fell over vomiting, couldn't get up like the world was being shaken. And it had been a couple of days that I couldn't get up off the floor. Mm -hmm. And part of me thought, what if this is who I am? Like, what if I'm mentally ill and hysterical and the only reason I was ever something more than a foster kid was this marriage pulling me out and making me a pillar of society and now what if I just spend my life like this on the floor of this apartment and this is all I am and I'm not able to get a job once my kids grow up or any of those things. And then I thought, do I judge those people? Like, do I think that's a wrong person to be? Like, Mm -hmm. do I think that people who can't work, do I think that people who end up on social assistance, who have severe disabilities, is that a bad person? And I thought, no, the things that society saw as my accomplishments weren't actually things that I saw as my accomplishments. And when I think about what makes a good person, I think about, are they loving and kind and do they prioritize community? And one of the things I love about Facebook is there are a number of people who have really participated in the health of the Facebook group who could not participate in normal societal ways because they have conditions that mean that some days are better than others. And you can really help out with moderating and educating and helping approve posts or do creative things with threads on a day when you can and a day when you can't, you can't. And I love that about the group. Right, right. It's adaptive. Yeah, and I I love those people and I think they are wonderful, amazing people and I would be honored to grow up to be like them. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) And so I rolled over and I made this list and I wrote at the top my own metric and I wrote like nine points of what I think makes a good person. And it wasn't that other life. How orderly of you. (laughs) I made my little list. That should be our next podcast. The nine points of what (laughs) makes a good person, according to Liz. Well, and that was a big part of me prioritizing the hysterical society and saying this is a reflection of my values and So then when we wanted to change the name, I was like, no, 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 but hysteria, (laughs) I have roots in hysteria. And part of managing having chronic problems, and it turned out that I didn't, I'm actually very lucky health-wise, and when my situation changed, a lot of that health stuff changed. So ironically, a lot of the roots of it were mental, but when you have a health problem that has roots of mental issues, you're still a health problem, still in your life. And you get written off. (laughs) Because of that, right? And one of the things I love about the hysterical society is that if you are a person with unreliable health and only so many spoons, 
you can still show up and be part on some days right. lying on your back with the phone in front of your face. Right, right. You know, when you were talking about um, your impression of other people and what that means to you, one of the things that really helped me pick up my cane and stand tall with it was that there was a, a woman in my life who used a scooter for mobility. She could walk, she could transfer herself, but she used a scooter for good mobility. And I said, I really struggled with, you know, getting the cane and I, it was hard for me. And she said, well, I don't know why. Why would that be hard for you? She said, my wheels are my freedom. Yeah. My wheels are my legs. My wheels are how I get around. And I would never, ever have suggested to her that since she could transfer or she could walk, that she should not use the scooter. She should just try harder to not need that. Like, the, how stupid yeah. would that be? And she helped transform my way of looking at the world, like to look at who people are and what they can do and where their energy is and what they could manage. And it, it was so beautiful. Like she was such a helpful influence to me. So I think every time we do something where we demonstrate our uniquenesses and our differences, and we allow ourselves to be vulnerable in front of other people, like you saying that, that the people at Acro Yoga could try it because if your body could do it, maybe their body could do it, right? Yeah. When I was in my 20s, I weighed about 200 pounds and I signed up for belly dancing classes. And I phoned the woman and I said, I was so nervous, right? I phoned her and I said, I'd really, really like to take belly dancing, but I weigh 200 pounds. Can I, can I come? She said, of course you can come. Get here right now. <laughs> And now, a cracked cup blessing. Dear new guy in aerobics class, I see you, way at the back, cheeks red with humiliation occasionally wincing into the mirror when you catch sight of yourself, trying desperately to follow the perfectly synchronized flailing of limbs that is the rest of the class. Remember, it took us years to learn these steps. Keep coming. You belong here. Your body doesn't know if you moved right or not. It just knows that you moved. If you're sweating, you win. And the self-consciousness? Well, that makes you one of us. The woman second from the right who looks like an Olympian has just learned to go without the leg warmers she hates but still wore year-round. She feels that her ankles are not her best feature. And that other woman? The one who punches her fist into the air with confident joy as her underarms ripple like a pond on a windy day? She is to arrive to class in a scooter. For the first six months, the arm movements were all she could do. She belongs here now. And she belonged here when she was in the scooter, too. The woman way on the right, who jumps super high on the kicks, is doing that because she's so excited to finally be able to do it. She's finally decided that kegels and coolness be damned. She's going to wear those little liners that catch the dribbles that started to happen after her third kid's birth. And the immigrant woman, in the third row, who's moving her hips in those exuberant, graceful circles, used to be self-consciously trying to imitate the tidier, jerkier movements of the white women with the flat butts. But now, she dances like she did at home, the way her body loves to dance. You belong here, flailing in wild confusion and trying to figure out how to make manly jazz hands and working through whatever crap you were taught about sissies. You belong here because the decisions about what you do with your body, whether they involve cheeseburgers or leotards, are your damn decisions to make. Your body cannot fail to qualify you to occupy space. Qualifying is not what bodies are for. 
Living is what bodies are for. It took us years to learn these steps. Sharing space isn't easy. Sharing space while flailing about and trying to get stronger is even harder. We have made the mistakes of eating beans before yoga class, and we've jazz hands each other in the eye in step class, and we've uppercutted ourselves in the jaw in boxer size. We looked down our noses at each other in grade seven. We shared diet pills and puking tips in college. We said horrible things to each other on purpose and by accident. And we learned to live outside our bodies, and we encouraged others to do the same. And then we reclaimed ground slowly. We learned to be kind to one another and ourselves, not girly, flowery kind either, kind like warriors. Step forward, forward, back. Step, touch, jazz, hands, back, down, then up again. Bodies belong to those who inhabit them. It took us years to learn these steps. And now, we owe nobody an apology, and we will dance with wild abandon. We will move our bodies in whatever jiggly or stiff or sloppy way feels like joy and strength to us. And if you want to do manly jazz hands or girly jazz hands or no jazz hands at all, rock on. You belong with us. We welcome you into our sisterhood, our sister brotherhood, our peoplehood, our humans with beating hearts that want to beat stronger hood. It took us years to learn these steps. You've been listening to the Cracked Cup Podcast, a Mirth and Dignity production. If you liked our podcast, we would appreciate it so much if you would give us a rating and maybe even review, and we would especially appreciate it if you would recommend us to a friend. We'd love to hear from you, whether you have a question or a comment or a comment masquerading as a question. You can email us at uuhystericalsociety at gmail.com or use the contact form on our website at crackedcuppodcast.com. If you liked the podcast, you might like to attend a service some Sunday morning. If you're wondering about this Facebook group we keep mentioning, there's a link to that in the show notes as well. And a huge thank you to the UU Funding Program for funding the first 10 episodes of our podcast, and also a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters who are joining with us and supporting our vision of having this podcast last even beyond those first 10 episodes. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash mirthanddignity. If you'd like to use the blessing from this month's podcast in a worship or in your own creative endeavors, you're more than welcome to do that, ideally with attribution in the form of a shout out to our podcast or website. All of our materials are licensed under the Truth Will Not Hold Still licensing, which we invented, and which means that not only are you free to use our stuff, you are free to modify our words to suit new contexts and understandings as language evolves over time. Music for the Cracked Cup podcast is done by Blue Dot Sessions and production is done by the saintly and talented Adrian Muhajirin and audio interference is managed by Simba the Cat. We are so grateful that you could join us.